0: This is the Ironside Podcast, number 52, with Tom Dinkelman and me, Brett Kane. Good evening, Tom. How's it going, buddy? Glad to be here. See the child. He is pale and thin. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. He stokes the scullery fire. Outside lie dark turned fields with rags of snow and darker woods beyond that harbor yet a few last wolves. His folk are known for hewers of wood and drawers of water. But in truth, his father has been a schoolmaster. He lies in drink. He quotes from poets whose names are now lost. The boy crouches by the fire and watches him. Night of your birth, 33. The Leonids, they were called. God, how the stars did fall. I look for blackness, holes in the heavens, the dipper stove. The mother dead these 14 years did incubate in her own bosom the creature who would carry her off. The father never speaks her name. The child does not know it. He has a sister in this world that he will not see again. He watches pale and unwashed. He can neither read nor write and in him broods already a taste for mindless violence. All history present in that visage, the child, the father of the man. At 14, he runs away. He will not see again the freezing kitchen house in the pre-dawn dark, the firewood, the washpots. He wanders west as far as Memphis, a solitary migrant upon that flat and pastoral landscape. Blacks in the field, lank and stooped, their fingers spider-like among the bowls of cotton, a shadow to agony in the garden, against the sun's declining figures moving in the slower dusk across a paper skyline. A lone dark husbandman pursuing mule and harrow down the rain-blown bottomland toward night. A year later, he is in St. Louis. He is taken on for New Orleans aboard a flatboat, 42 days on the river. At night, the steamboats hoot and trudge past through the black waters, all alight like cities adrift. They break up the float and sell the lumber, and he walks in the streets and hears tongues he has not heard before. He lives in a room above a courtyard behind a tavern, and he comes down at night like some fairy book beast to fight with the sailors. He is not big, but he has big wrists, big hands. His shoulders are set close. The child's face is curiously untouched behind the scarves, the eyes oddly innocent. They fight with fists, with feet, with bottles or knives, all races, all breeds, men whose speech sounds like the grunting of apes, men from lands so far and queer that standing over them where they lie bleeding in the mud, he feels mankind itself vindicated. On a certain night, a Maltese boatswain shoots him in the back with a small pistol. Swinging to deal with the man, he is shot again just below the heart. The man flees and he leans against the bar with the blood running out of his shirt. The others look away. After a while, he sits in the floor. And that is uh, the first few lines of Cormac McCarthy's seminal work, Blood Meridian. And I read that because our guest is partial to that book. And we are honored to welcome Grandpa to the show. Grunpa, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. So why do you like Blood Meridian?
1: <clears throat> um, that is like a. that's honestly the hardest question i think i'll be asked tonight like it's um it's a great book because it is about everything like and it's extremely like dark but it's not dark in a way that like in horror novels or something where it seems like um like it's put on it's it's dark because it's real like in it um it seems to capture like the like the uncanniness of just reality like how things really are strange you just are used to them like there's certain passages in that book and there's one especially that talks about you know if you were to strip all your experience from like your present reality you would see it for like what it is like it's it's you know, talking chimeras and apes and you know, the world is actually very peculiar, but it seems familiar, so you're you don't notice it. and that book captures it really well, and it has the best character that's ever been written about, which I think is I mean it's a, it's a very dark figure. again, he's the kind of the antagonist, um, but it's called Judge Holden, and he's the best villain that's ever been written about. I mean, the whole thing is just like I, I've read books about that book, so I don't want to start off on like a long rant here. I know we just began, but it's my favorite book because it's 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 actually based in history. It's from it's about the you know the the Indian Wars and in Texas and Mexico and in the Southwest, um, and it's yeah, it's one minute Cormac's talking about just some average thing or some terrible battle, and the next thing you know, you're like you're spanning the cosmos like talking about like the, the nature of reality or something it's it's just a really incredible book i encourage anybody to read it
0: that's awesome and and you're totally right and it's it's amazing you know he obviously has has written other works that that people are familiar with the road i uh, got me mm-hmm. into a movie and uh, no country for old men wow. and, and he, yeah he just has an, an ability to uh, not mince words—that I think is just right. lost uh, on a lot of writers. And you know, you are a, a very well-read person yourself. How did that come out? Did you always like to read when when you were a kid, or or was that something you kind of gained as an as a man?
1: Yeah, I've always read. Um, I come from a family that is reading is like really important. Like I'm. Not a lot of folks in my family are actually like very well educated formally. Like they don't have parchments on walls or anything, but they, they read like, you know, my, um, my stepfather is like really like my father in a lot of ways. Like he, um, he knows all the ladies at the local library by name, knows what their favorite donuts are. They hold books for them. Like when they get book shipments in. Um, they'll call him and say, we're not going to put this on the shelf. We know you're going to like it. And they'll hold it for him. He'll come by and get it because they even know his tastes. Like um, he reads every night for hours, especially now that he's retired. And so, yeah, I grew up reading like that. Um, And not to dox myself, but like in Texas, they actually do, um, do a competition for literary criticism. And I was on a team that won like the state medal, like the gold medal one year so I've always read I've always consumed a lot of literature I, you know um, I was going to be a philosophy major at one point which is really kind of funny because I kind of hate that type of person now but the um, but yeah I found Blood Meridian right after I got back from the war I think I found it in like 2010 or 11 and I've, I've read that book like god 15 times I think is how many like I've lost count and, and part of the problem with counting is, is that I'll start it at my favorite parts but um but yeah I've always liked reading I've really always enjoyed
0: reading.
1: um but I don't like reading bad things and so sometimes I'll just read the same thing again like there's certain books that
0: I've read a lot and then there's a lot of books I have read at all that's awesome I I love that and and I you know that's so funny you talk about knowing a librarian by name, and, and it's like guys have their barber, and I think every man should have yeah. you know, a barber and a librarian that, they, right. that they're close with. What, what books in particular do you feel were, were formative in, in your younger years?
1: Man, that's another difficult question. Um, I got really into Hemingway um, at a good time. For a long time, it wasn't Blood Meridian that I was, like, quoting, like, the Bible and, you know, carrying around with me everywhere. It was um, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I really liked that book, which is funny because now I know that, like, a lot of people don't like that one. Like, they think that's, like, Hemingway's kitschiest book. Um, But I think it was great. I still like it. Um, Yeah, I was really into philosophy, and I liked, like, the older stuff. So, you know, I I really liked, like, the fragments of Heraclitus. Like, I read that a lot. Um, I also liked the the Bible. Like, I liked, um, I've been a really big fan of Ecclesiastes, too. I mean, you're starting to see a theme, though. Like, I like really kind of dark stuff, like, um, kind of brutal realities, like uh, Meditations of Aurelius. Um, I like kind of being slapped around by the stuff I read. I don't like the, you know... I can't, it's not like I have a thing against like Stephen King or some of that, but like, you know, the term potboiler, you know, like just the kind of book that's just, it's not good for much other than just boiling water in a wood stove. Like, um, I don't, I can't get into, like, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of books that like I see people are fans of, and you know, I'll attempt to read. And, and it's unfortunately like, even like science fiction and stuff, like I'll get it, I'll open it up. I'm just, this is work for me. It's It's too poppy. It's too the heroes are too great you know the the villains are too bad you know like i like yeah i like their, a good dose of reality in what i read so yeah a lot of it early on was like kind of philosophical but um in the end like yeah blood Meridian's kind of won my heart i almost don't want to read any other book
2: do you like the dark stuff because it teaches you more about yourself or you already know who you are and you like the dark stuff because of it
1: So like, this is like an, like, this is in Ecclesiastes actually, and it's, and it says that like, you learn more at a funeral than you like learn at a party. And so like, I feel that, um, the, un the uncomfortable parts, like the parts about your own death, the parts about like the futility maybe of it. Um, yeah, I guess I I learn more about myself or I just, I'm having to confront facts. Like, you know, part of that whole point of like the memento mori like angle is that you should be examining constantly like with a mindfulness that you were to one day be dead and are you wasting this current moment you know and reading a book is in some ways kind of a waste you know unless you're learning something I guess like um but you should be examining that like what am I spending my time with like um and so yeah I think that's why I like the dark stuff plus like I like the bigger questions about things like you know the purpose of things like the teleology of life like whether or not we're here for a reason or not and if we're not like can you still scrap together some meaning like i like those those bigger problems like i don't care really about cosmo quizzes or what somebody wore on a red carpet like i just i don't know like that stuff just doesn't do it for me and no offense anybody enjoys it like but yeah i like the bigger questions
2: i imagine it's fine to offend the people that do enjoy it (laughs) Yeah, I
1: mean, it's not like you're going to beat me up, probably.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, even look at uh, in Seven Habits, I mean, Stephen Covey talks about that, about viewing your own funeral, thinking about what it looks like, you know, yeah, yeah. the people that are there, the things that are being said, you know, if you were to, if you were to define that, what would it look like? And I think that's kind of along the same lines. I mean, it's, you know, there's a, there's a, some hard, fast things that would give us some direction immediately. Especially when we see that side of it, and I think to have, to view the dark is the only way to to also view the light. You have to have that balance. You have to have the the contrast in order to to appreciate the other.
1: Certainly, yeah. I'd, you know, I've only recently come back around on some items of faith, and it's a hundred percent because I've like almost like rediscovered evil. Um, you know, it's. Sometimes it's hard to see the good in things. When you see the bad, that's what makes you want to look for the good.
0: Yeah. I I love how you know on on a, another podcast you describe yourself as you know a, a pessimist. You know in in terms of you know, philosophy or ideology, but you don't. Uh, except black pills or the doom and gloom and and i think that's a a really cool example have have you always been like that because i mean you've certainly seen plenty of doom and gloom and and plenty of bad yeah i mean
1: yeah i don't know i'm i'm really blessed with the um and this is not to brag but i have like sort of a mental fortitude that I've—I don't know where I got it from. That's why I consider it such a blessing. Like it's not a thing that I, I feel like I've cultivated, or that I'm responsible for having. Um, but yeah, I really despise. I mean, I love to joke about misery. Like I think it's there's nothing better than like when you're in a really bad spot. Like as, you know, when I was in the war, there were times that like you would just be like, "This is awful. Like everything we're doing is awful. Like I hate it here." But you don't want to hear that. And you're not going to, you know, and, and one of the things I'm thankful for too, is like that experience. Like you get to be around men who that was uh, banished, you know, from what you would talk about. Like you wouldn't talk about that. You could only joke about it. You couldn't complain or whine or cry. Like all you could do is just move on and make jokes and laugh at death or whatever it was. Um, and so, yeah, I despise the black pill. Like, I reject the entire notion of it. Like, and I honestly think that, like, part of the reason why we've seen such failure in our, you know, political constituency is this just nihilistic crybaby, we're going to lose anyway, it's all doomed. Um, You know, if you're sitting in your rucksack, just crying about the war, you're not fighting it. And you won't change the outcome. I mean, just by the declaration that things won't get better, you've almost just ceded victory to your opponent. And so, yeah, I just don't. Um, I don't like it. And so, yeah, like I, I do ultimately have a lot of trouble believing in um, like positivism and you know supernatural things and the metaphysics. Um, I want to, but you know, I can't. I can't really make the. I can't jump the gap. Um, so I tend to actually believe that you know philosophically like I'm a little pessimistic I've read too much Schopenhauer but I've also started reading a lot of Nietzsche which is just like yeah so what like the universe meaningless like but can you scrape meaning out of it like can you actually war against that fact and you can and uh yeah I just prefer it like I can't stand the
0: black pill yeah I know I answered that very (laughs) wrong. Oh, it's great. You know, and, and I think it's like a well-balanced diet. I mean, you, you are eating only good things of of good quality. You're not consuming junk food. You're not consuming junk books and you're certainly not consuming uh, junk black pills. Yeah. What made you decide to join the army?
1: I don't have a great reason. I think there's a lot of people that join, you know, I was in the infantry and so I was able to see what what kind of people join the infantry. And I think a lot of folks would be surprised who joins the infantry. Um, A lot of people say that it's just a bunch of dummies, which is also true. There are some dummies, like there are really some dumb people that join the infantry because they couldn't get anything else. But that tends to be actually the minority. Um, A lot of folks join to get away from something um, at home. You know, lack of opportunity, bad family stuff, uh, trouble with the law. There's also a lot of, you know, there's some patriotic people who want to fight for their country. They're very patriotic. Um, I don't know which of those I was. I, I wrote about this one time in my very neglected blog, but I was saying that, like, um, you know, I joined. I actually made this weird jump where there was this one point where I was, um, I was very left wing. Like, I've kind of just, like, I've danced around the entire, path, like, political compass. Like, um, and at that point, like, I was waltzing through, like, left, like, leftist, non-authoritative kind of leftist, like, kind of like the, but um, I was, like, in Amnesty International, I was an officer in there, like, I got to pick which prisoners of conscience, like, we sent letters to and such, and I was really, I was really wanting to change the world, and, um, but I got into this one we had like a guest speaker show up and he was like somebody important from Amnesty. Like he came in and he was talking to our group and he said that like, made some comment about like, we were talking about the Zapatistas like in Chiapas, Mexico and like their struggle and stuff. And he was like, you know, like violence doesn't solve anything. And I was like, why are we trying to help out the Zapatistas? Like they seem to be using violence against their enemies. And he was like, well, yeah, they have to do that. They have to fight. But, you know, really it doesn't solve anything. I was like, I think that they would benefit from more guidance than they would from like letters just to, you know, spring their dudes out of jail. And it created like, I mean, we got into like an argument about it and, you know, I made a comment to him that ultimately got kind of me kicked out was like, you know, like violence is actually the unifying force of like nature, like it's a blood meridian concept, really, you know, that like violence actually is the governing, you know, almost like God of the universe. It's his major, it's a major tool. And so, yeah, I just, I fell out of that. And I was like, kind of politically homeless. And I was, I mean, i had even protested the Afghanistan war. Um, but then um, in 2003, like we invaded Iraq. And uh, yeah, I don't know, it kind of stirred me like I, I fell for the propaganda, I'm sure some people would say, like, I, you know, I, back then, everybody watched TV, you know, like, uh, I still watch TV, I don't do it now. But I saw that, um, you know, I saw people pulling down statues and um, liberated folks. And, you know, I wasn't saying went on the war. I mean, I won't, I I don't pretend like a lot of people do that. I knew that it was going to be bad or that it was for false reasons or I had no idea. I I think I was like 19. But um, honestly, I just, I just wanted to go to war. Like, I just wanted to see what it was like. I just wanted to see if I would like it wanted to see what I'd do, you know, in certain situations, like, you know, a lot of people think that like, when I say something like that, I mean, like I wanted to see if I'd kill somebody or something, but like, truly, I just wanted to see if it would like frighten me or change me, you know, or if I could change it, you know, like maybe I would stop something bad from happening. I don't know. I just felt drawn to it. Like I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't, I couldn't think that it was happening and that I wasn't there. And, um, I had a long time to deliberate too, because I mean, I signed up and they were like, you gotta wait nine months to get in. And so I waited nine months, like very patiently to get into the war. And by that time it had changed and it still didn't dissuade me. So yeah, I, I don't know why I did it, but I know that I couldn't have not done it.
2: Were there some things that surprised you about yourself after you found yourself in war that you weren't expecting or, or things that just validated what you already knew?
1: I um, even before the war, I found things that like really surprised me. Like, um, I was always like a like a, just a consummate underachiever in school. Like, I'd get the grades that I had to get. You know, if it was a subject I enjoyed, I'd get good grades. If It was one I didn't like, I would just barely pass. And um, I knew that I knew that I could do better, and I knew that I had in within me like the ability to do well, but the army and particularly the war brought out um, things in me that were, that showed me like, I guess my potential. Like I, I'll be honest, I was scared. Like I was scared I was going to get killed. And if I didn't do things, like it finally put like the necessary fire under me, like to, to try hard at things, to learn things, you know, to I just like I read you know, fiction and nonfiction, I was reading every FNMTM that we had, like every field manual, every technical manual. Um, I wanted to practice everything. You know, I had to like square away my gear all the time. You know, I was very, very fit back then. Like I had to constantly work out like um, I was, again, like an underachiever elsewhere. But in, the, in that particular part of the army, I was trying hard um and and the war seemed to kind of bring it out because like there's there's an there's just like a, a nature to that to war that makes you take everything very seriously And to to go to what we were saying earlier like you you don't know if you're gonna live so you you tend to change what you appreciate um and so there was a lot of that too but the war was it, it was a great influence i mean I think that yeah, bringing out my potential was probably the biggest. But but yeah, and then just to, to go back to the optimism too, like to just know that like in a lot of bad situations, some of them I wouldn't want to be back in. Um, but when I was in them, I didn't, I didn't worry about it. Like I I had a I don't know, I kind of had a peace, and I'm appreciative to have the knowledge that I'm I am that way.
0: I think that that's significant. You know that when when you're actually in it that's almost a better spot to be in than you know kind of in that uh transitional space and you you can spend more time over analyzing or intellectualizing or agonizing over just this last weekend we were at my daughter's soccer game and i coached her soccer game we lost pretty badly and we get back to the car and it, it wouldn't start and she's hungry and tired, you know, and all these stressors. And I was really stressed out, but, you know, my in-laws came and, and picked up my wife and daughter and I was able to, to jump it and I was driving and then it died in the middle of the road and it started raining and it was a you know pretty high speed road. And I got out and I felt better being in that situation and, you know, having to direct traffic, uh, than I did with when the car was you know dead parked and I was worrying about oh okay well, I have to do all these things so I, I think that you being in those uh, you know potentially lethal uh, situations that really shows you who you are and and I think that you haven't even reached your full potential yet uh, and, and I think that you're on a, a great tra- trajectory. What did you think about? You know, some of your instructors, you know, we kind of talked about you know, your peers and that there are people who mm-hmm. joined for all sorts of reasons, but did, did you have particularly good instructors? Did you have some bad? Uh, what was that like?
1: I, um, I was, again, very blessed. So, uh, this is, so I joined the army and the reason why it took nine months to get in. So like I signed up, um, I wanted to be a ranger. My, um, my knowledge of the army is fairly limited like almost every person that joins it you know even if you have a family member and i did have a family member, i had a brother and he was in the army before and he was airborne and he was like you have to at least be airborne and if you're not airborne like well, i'm gonna disown you and don't join the army for something else beside the infantry this is all advice by the way i mean i wouldn't even have to, i wouldn't talk some young person right now into joining probably but i would not give the same advice that i was given um but i took his advice um and told them I wanted to be airborne infantry. Like, uh, the folks that, you know, the recruiters, like, that was, like, I guess my first, like, we'd say instructor. Like, my, my recruiter was infantry. And, you know, he looked at my GT score, and he's like, you're dumb if you go join the infantry. Like, you have, I mean, I have a pretty high GT score, which is, like, how the Army measures, like, it's a general technical score. But it's, a lot of people call it, like, your Army IQ all the jobs and all the MOSs are limited according to to GT. And so he's like, you're a fool if you do that. And I was like, well, I want to be a ranger. And he's like, that's great. Everybody does too. You can wait two years if you want to be a ranger. Like the next slot to be open is impossible. And he's like, what you should do is just be special forces. And I did not know you could be special forces. So we started down that path and I waited nine months to enter that curriculum and so like you know my first instructor was like my recruiter and a lot of people talk about your recruiter a lot mine didn't mine was great i mean he actually he actually passed uh he had a helicopter crash in iraq which i didn't know for years until after it happened um but he was great like um but then i came in and you know i went through what they call like one station unit training which is just like infantry basic but like also like the advanced individual training but it's all like in one and and my instructors were all recently from Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, I want to say they were all actually from Afghanistan. They couldn't have been from Iraq, but there were a lot of them that had like the combat infantryman's badge. Now there were some that didn't, and you could you could really even tell without looking at the uniforms like which ones were which, um, because the the combat infantry, inst- like drill instructors that we had or drill sergeants, I should say they, um, they were much more relaxed. They were much more like, you're not going to use this. Like you need to focus on this instead kind of guys. And so like, I, I got an early dose of it, but like, I never really considered that good. But as soon as I finished airborne school, they put me in um, this curriculum back then that, I mean, should have almost been outlawed, but it was um, uh, special operations, preparation and con- conditioning. It's called sopsy. And there's actually a guy on Twitter that like I get to talk to now. Um, it was my instructor. And um, had, at that time, I think he was a sergeant first class. I do believe he was promoted since then before he retired, but it was Zastro and he was in the very infamous ODA trip, like the triple nickel ODA, the one that took Kabul with like 10 dudes and like a pack of cigarettes. Um, and these guys, and those guys at Topsy were absolutely instrumental to in changing like my life. Like that was a miserable program. It was only four weeks. I think I had what they called a zero week in front of it. So I ended up having five weeks with them. But it was just, I mean, they crushed us. Um and really kind of showed me the difference between like people that quit or don't quit. Like they had this entire ceremony, actually. I kind of like to tell a story you guys like start waving your hands or something. If you want me to slow down or stop, but this, um, every we first week, one... Okay, good. So like the first week you can't quit back then, like you couldn't quit. Um, they let you quit the first morning and that was, I mean, it was a rough morning. So there's a lot of people that did quit, but after that, the first week you couldn't quit because they just wanted it to build in you. Like, if you're a quitter, they wanted you to just really want to quit. But then, the last three weeks, every morning after breakfast chow, so you do PT, you do breakfast, uh, you, you know, PT, breakfast chow, and then you had this formation, and they'd, they'd put all the platoons together and they'd say, anybody that wants to quit, fall out to the rear. And um, we went in that class from like 180 something. I mean, it was a lot. It was a lot, a lot. It was a lot of kids to 79 people graduated. Um, and you would have been just eating chow with somebody. They would be bunking with you. You wouldn't know they were going to quit. But then like they just, they'd fall out. And what they'd have to do is they'd have to walk to the front and they had this like uh, this platform up front, this big wooden platform. And on this platform was like a, a huge metal gong. And um, every person that quit had to go up there and ring the gong, and they'd have to tell everybody why they quit. Now, most people just, there they became like a boilerplate quit and they'd say, I'm roster number, you know, 109 PFC, whatever. And I voluntarily withdraw from this course because I was not mentally or physically prepared. I mean, I still have it memorized because that was the one, that was the thing they said all the time, but I got to where I saw what like, quitting looked like. And um, that course, like, I mean, it changed. I I think that might've really solidified my hatred of the black pill because I got, I mean, I got to where I can smell a quitter. Like I can, I can talk to a person within like five minutes and be like, that guy's quitter. And I, um, yeah, I really despised it. So those guys were great. And then, um, you know, I went to selection, got selected, went to what they called like SOPSI Two. And that was the best course in the entire army. Like um, I I mean, it, it, I won't compare it to Ranger School because I don't want to get all the threats of violence from all the people that graduated Ranger School. because um, <laughs> those guys are super proud of it, and they should be. I think Ranger School is an excellent curriculum, most of the men that come out of it. They know small unit tactics very well. But I do it's not Ranger School, but the, the guys that I went to the substitute 2 course, I think it was like four or five weeks as well. Um, the instructors there were great, and it prepared us for small unit tech tactics, which this is about the time that I get bounced out of the whole SF thing, which is another story, but but yeah, those those guys were great. I learned a ton, and so by the time I made it to the 82nd, I mean, I was, was better trained in small unit tactics than most of my squad leaders. I had like a no, you know, no quit attitude, um, and yeah, that didn't, I mean, that wasn't natural to me. Like, I grew up like every other kind of millennial zennial kid you know I'd, I played some high school sports and stuff but like I wasn't I wasn't like that and so yeah I was really prepared and so I think I'd say most of my instructors were good and even the bad ones you learn just as much from the bad ones right just like the funeral thing like you learn just as much from a bad leader as you do from a good leader maybe more so yeah I had really excellent instructors joined the military
2: I imagine watching all these guys quit it became easier and easier for other people to quit Cause they saw, I mean, they saw other people do it. Right. right? So I'm curious, did it ever cross your mind? Did you ever think about it? And if you did, what kept you from, from quitting?
1: I wanted to quit all the time. Like I wanted to quit all the time, but like not in the way that like, I knew I would quit. Like I knew I wouldn't quit, but I wanted to quit. Um, in special forces selection, like in SFAS, like they, when I went, it was 28 days. And, um, I want to say like the last not the last day so like four days before the last day they start you on what they call like the trek back then and it's like 50 miles cross country with all these like team events it's tough and i remember walking across the drop zone there outside of a call and um i was thinking about like maybe there's a hole that i could like put my leg in and if like i stepped in in the right way it would break my leg and then i'm not quitting like I'm not quitting, my legs broke. And everybody will say, you know, you tried really hard um, and really proud of you, but you broke your leg. I mean, what can you do? Like, you know, you didn't quit. Um, and yeah, I, it, I was really miserable a lot of times, but there was just, I don't know what it was that kept me. I, I'm really, I guess I'm really susceptible to peer pressure. I really don't want people to think of me as a quitter. Maybe um, I wasn't really trying to be a green beret. I didn't want the hat that much. I mean, I wanted to be in a really good unit. Like I knew that I wanted to be in a good unit because I knew good units come home. Um, and I thought if I didn't quit, I'd be, I'd, I'd know I was going to a good unit. You know, if I was going to a, an ODA or something, if I was going to group i'd have so like part of it was that like self-preservation part of it was just I, i didn't think i could live with the shame of being a quitter um but i won't pretend that like there's some like brave person in me that's like no i'm just that tough like i i'm i don't think i'm that tough i just shame was a i was more ashamed of quitting than i was of wanting to succeed which is
0: kind of a cowardly way of being brave Man, I don't think you have a cowardly bone in your body, brother. I oh, disagree. <laughs> I know me better than you. <laughs> well, th- those are the only bones you've broken, are the cowardly bones. <laughs> and forget about breaking a leg. You know, and I, I'm interested in, since you've talked about on, on the Exit podcast, that you had one of your guys later on who came to you with a profile, and, and you were kind of surprised um, and, and so w- what was the, the difference between, you know, when you first got in to, you know, the, I guess the next generation that you saw coming up?
1: I, um, I think the big, I mean, I, I, I try not to get into the, like the generational wars. And it's mostly because i kind of occupy hinterland between those two camps like i'm not i think technically i'm a millennial um i tell people i'm a zennial now i've also told them that like i'm transgenerational like i'm like the rachel Dollazel of <laughs> genetics like i am um i want to be gen x my parents are boomers like they're all very old they had me very late all of my siblings or Gen X solidly within that cohort. Um, And so I just always like, I felt like Gen X does, um, but I'm quite a bit younger. So um, the difference to me has just mostly been in, I don't, I do think that like nutritionally or something, they're just fundamentally different. I think when we talked about like that on exit, if I recall, like, they really do have like lower bone density. Like they're, they're they're not just weaker men. Like they, I mean, I don't mean like weaker in character, I guess, like, but they are physically like somehow um, their frames just don't hold up. Um, There's also, but I think the bigger one is just that they didn't, they didn't go outside. They just didn't go outside. You know, I, I, I work in, uh, information systems and security and such now. Like, I'm at a desk all day, um, on a computer a lot. I'm very online. Like, unlike a lot of people, I very much embrace it. Um, but I didn't grow up that way. Like, I grew up where it was, uh, hey, it's a pretty day outside, go outside. And I wasn't allowed to come inside. Like, it, even if I wanted to go inside, I, I couldn't. There wasn't a computer there for me. Um, our television was very limited, you know. Because um, I, I grew up very, very rural. And um, yeah, I just spent a lot of time outside. And so I feel like the newer generation didn't. Because um, I notice it in other ways, not just like in what they know about being outside. I mean, it's not just that they can't light a fire, right? It's that they don't have like these interpersonal skills that allow them to communicate with you know, if it's men with other men, you know, or women, like they just don't know how to talk to people. They don't know how to manage conflict. They don't know how to, they just seem uncomfortable. Um, And so like, I, I feel like that's part of it. I mean, I don't know. I, again, I don't want to get into the wars like between the generations, but I, I kind of do worry about the youth. You know, I think that, I think that the influence of the internet you know, while it brought them, like, a library of Alexandria, I mean, they literally know about anything they want to know about, they have, like, the world at their fingertips, like, part of me, like, almost wishes to go back in time, like, almost rather than be illiterate, but at least be outside and tanned.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely, and, and of course, you know, not to cast dispersions on other generations, yeah, I, I joined the Guard as an adult, and there were kids, you know, almost half my age, you know, at, at drill with me, and and they're just studs, you know, the, the, yeah. there's some some really good young people. And I, what I think it is, is that we just haven't adapted yet, in order to combat these specific challenges. Because like, when you or I or Tom, when we were growing up, yeah, I mean, there, there were obviously plenty of challenges, just not the same challenges that the young people today are facing. But they are absolutely able to be overcome and, and mitigated and and yeah I, I don't think that we can uh, let ourselves rest on our laurels for oh yeah we were outside all the time as kids and right. we definitely can't uh you know blame these young kids it's like oh well if you guys just did a b or c so what are they Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, You go ahead, brother. Well, it's, it's
1: just they're the legacy. Yeah. I mean, again, like it's very black pill to just be like, oh, like the, the future of America's gone and these kids will never go outside. Like take them outside. You know, like show an active outside lifestyle, you know. Do be the example that you want to be. Like don't um but yeah, I did cut you off. I want to give you back the, the mic here.
0: Hey, you're you're the man of the hour. You there's no way that you could uh could cut me off man i I appreciate that you know and you are are the the best fit for the purpose of of this podcast and kind of our our message you know focusing on building up a a defense you know spiritually intellectually physically and and socially and and tom and i we we both serve uh, in our church congregations with with the youth with the young men in particular And it's, it's awesome to just have that opportunity like, Hey guys, we're, we're going to learn how to start a fire. We're going to learn how to, you know, throw a punch. We're going to go for a walk. We're going to go for a hike. And I, I, I want to know what, what are some things that you're doing with, you know, with your son to you know kind of build him up so he can follow in your footsteps.
1: You know, and it's, it's funny after that speech of mine and yours, like I have to tell you, like my son, um, my son does have like some peculiar challenges that the other children don't. Um, but I, um, what I'm doing with my son is not trying to make him like me. That's been a mistake I've watched a lot of fathers make. It's really easy to, to get discouraged, especially when they don't follow in my footsteps. Like, I have a quiet hope that my son doesn't join the military. Like especially the infantry, um, he he needs to know some basics, and those basics are being covered slowly. We do try to teach him to throw a punch, but I don't think he's going to be much of a fighter. Like my son seems to be a little bit of a lover, and that's okay. Like I mean, again, like as long as he can throw a couple of good ones in there, um, we'll deal with the consequences. Like I I want him to be outside. Um, you know, we take him out, we hike, but you know, his legs are tired, He gets bored, you know, he'd rather be on like Minecraft or else like other items. I mean, um, there's like a rider, like I had this, it's funny, my, you know, my stepfather was a a game warden for like 28 years in Texas. And so like, he was very much an outdoorsman. And um, he had this quote that he had like framed in my bedroom as a kid and um I'm probably gonna misquote it which will embarrass me because I'll stare at this thing for like 20 years but um it's from like Cotton Cordell and it says like Te- first teach a boy to hunt fish you know but like basically it ends with saying that like you know in the end they'll come back to it um and so I did the same when I grew up I mean I got sick of fishing I got tired of fishing, you know, at 17, I moved out. I was still in high school. I was gone. Couldn't live out there anymore. I was going insane. You know, I wanted to be able to ride a bicycle or bounce a basketball or go talk to a girl. I didn't, I had sick of being out. Like I lived on a dirt road was three miles long. Um, but now where am I, you know, like every vacation I can, I'm out doing the things I used to do. And so like, my hope is, is that like by familiarizing my son with these things, appreciate them and he's gonna run away from home at some point to join the circus or the army or to do something else like to go find girls or something but like eventually he'll come back he'll recognize that that was the good stuff that these are like important skills so yeah i mean i'll tell you the truth you know my boy's like 10 years old and it does not seem that he has a lot of the same things um as like desires i mean he he doesn't want to shoot guns it's it's not even his thing. Like I, I'll take him out to shoot, and he'll he'll shoot it, and he's just like, "I'm good. That was loud. Like that's not fun." And so, yeah, I I want him to be familiar, but at the same time, he's not going to be like me. I think that you know, if you have young men that are interested in the stuff, and boys that are interested in this stuff, you should expose them, get them interested. If they are interested, pursue that interest. Um, there needs to be a fundamental basis for all of these things. They are important to being men but they're um but not everybody's gonna turn out that way you know and that you got to keep that in mind like it's to be uh to be a good man is not just to be a soldier or to be a outdoorsman or any of that like you, you don't even have those aren't even necessary they're they're somewhat charismatic and we tend to like those kind of men especially if you know we're into the sort of things that like we're into but but they're not necessary like um the trick is, is to teach the lessons that they teach and finding other ways to do it.
2: Yeah. I think you've got, I think you've got two differences. I think you have the being good, being a good man and being good at being a man. And I think, yeah. you know, I'm coming at this from a perspective of being a girl dad, I've got three daughters and no boys, but at mm. the same time, I constantly am trying to ingrain to my daughters, what a man looks like, what, you know, yes. what, what that entails. And so it's created kind of this double-edged sword where my daughters are somewhat judgmental of guys, you know, she, <laughs> you know, whether it be their compass, their body composition, how they conduct themselves, how they even dress. And, you know, and, and, so it's, it's a, it's a hard balance for sure. But at the same time, I think that we can ingrain those things into all of our children by giving them a great foundation and remembering, like you said, that they're going to be different than us. You know, my oldest is, is a girl version of me. And I remember having the conversation with my wife one time that, you know, she said, I'm doing all the things with her that I wanted my mom to do with me, and we still can't communicate properly. She goes, mm-hmm. I, You know, all the stuff that I wanted my mom to do or say, I'm doing those things. It's not happening. And I said, Well, just a second. Stop treating her like you because she's not like you. She's me. Treat her like me. <laughs> And so, and that was, you know, that gave her that different perspective. But then, like you said, bringing in those things that are important to you, same daughter, I said to her and said, hey, we're working through some stuff. I said, I'm going to ask you to do some things that you may not want to do that may be difficult. So I said, so I woke one morning, she was up at 530. I said, let's go to the gym. She said, I don't want to go to the gym. I said, well, you're coming to the gym with me. We're going to try to do some hard things. And we got there. We went through the first day and she said, can I come back tomorrow? And so, you know, I, I agree, man, I think that you have to be able to teach them the things that are important to you, and you need to remember who they are, and then ingrain that in them so that they can come back to that to being, you know, for boys being good men for women being for girls being good women, and for them to be able to recognize that in each other.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to make a comment like I, I don't have I only have the one child I don't have the boy. But I, I, I like what you're talking about. Like, I'm, women actually are the future. Like, boys will always do what the girls want, right? Like, I mean, I listen to my, my father. Like, um, I listen to him a little bit. I listen to him more. And like, actually, I'd say I don't even listen to him now because I still speak with him. Um, he's a voice in my head, though, right? I probably still don't listen to him. But I'll do, you know, and most men, when I was younger, I'd do whatever the girls wanted I, I liked what the girls liked. Like, boys go where the girls are. It's part of what I think is wrong with things now is that we're not raising women like you are, to where we're not having them be more judgmental of the men that they're choosing and they're being with.
2: We're raising them to that, be independent of the guys. They're, they're, they're being raised be. to be the boys. They can't be. Right. And then
1: we're not saying that in a way that, like, you know, I'd, the human species is like a complementary one. There's two genders for very distinct reasons and neither one or the equality angle is not, I mean, I always feel like this is a very strange topic and I'm forgiving if I'm de- like, I'm taking this on a tangent, but I just, I truly do believe that like if you're raising women to choose better men, we're going to end up with a better society. The, the men will rise to the challenge because they want the girls more than they want anything. When you're a young man, you want nothing more in life than a woman. Well, and
2: we need to stop teaching equality and teach equity. How they balance each other out?
1: Yeah, yeah, and there's you know there's a nature to this, like where, um, you know, again, I try not to get into even this war, you know, because especially now it's it's not even a war, it's a minefield. But um, I do think that you know I used to be very socially liberal, and I'm very much not now. Um, I do think that there is some distinction here; they're complementary. Um, I I do hope that our girls start to become more choosy um, and also, you know, independent so far as that they don't have to have a bad man, but they want a good one.
2: I love that.
0: That's beautifully said. And... I think you know you, you're you're talking about it. like yeah you see all these uh, feminist sides like the future is female I'm like yeah absolutely I'm I'm yeah. on board with that. Always uh, oh, has been. Yeah. Every Let's... man
1: on work yeah every man on earth came from a woman.
0: Yep. Like, absolutely. That's,
1: that's where they come
2: from? They still do. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you call yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like I'm probably canceled already as soon as things <laughs> end. I'm just. Like... Like every, every human on earth came from a womb, as far as I'm aware. Like,
0: yeah. No, exactly. And, you know, we're, we're studying uh, in in church. uh, Our Sunday school curriculum is in the old Testament uh, this year. And, you know, we, we just got through uh, Exodus and Pharaoh who decided to kill all of the the boys, um, of the Hebrews made a big mistake because it was actually all these women who ended up saving Moses and, and preserving him. And, and uh, it's, it's pretty funny that, that it was the women who were underestimated. And again, not to say that women uh, can't do things that that men do. Uh, we're, we just started reading in Judges and Deborah, you know, she, assists with leading the army uh, to to fight against the Canaanites. And then uh, there's just a a great example of that. So I think that, you know, I have just the one daughter right now. And and fortunately, she kind of likes fighting like like I do. So she'll come up and like punch me in in the stomach when I'm least expecting it. And, And that's good. But I think what you're doing and your son is going to be your best friend forever. And that, that's how I feel about my father. I know Tom, that that's how he feels about his father as well. And I think that the most important thing is to understand that like they actually have potential and that they can grow into it. And we're not, you know, trying to pigeonhole them into any, one thing you know it, Tom when you brought your daughter to the gym you weren't saying okay you just go do Pilates or whatever you know while I you yeah. know swing kettlebells it's it's something that we're all yeah, handed her a barbell and said let's go <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I want to ask you uh, so I know he he's still into to some some books and that seems like a great overlap of of shared interest what what books have you got your boy reading or does he like
1: he doesn't like any of my books like
0: I've (laughs) I've bought him books that I like um he
1: is um so my son has Asperger's like my son is um and they've changed this on us all like fifteen times, and I don't want to mean to offend anyone. He's on the spectrum. He what would be called like high functioning, but then I've heard that you don't use that anymore. I don't. Again, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. But the um, but yeah, he's uh, he's really into drawing. He's really into like graphic, um, like graphic novels like, but not like the ones that like you might be familiar with, like not the adult type graphic novels. They actually make these for kids. that are more, so he's like really been into those. Um, the only thing that I'd say that we've shared, um, is I have like some really awesome posters that I've gotten them that like I'm into, which are about like, um, about science stuff. He likes science. He's been really, you know, like every boy, he's really into dinosaurs. You know, he's really into like um, megafauna. Um, And so like, I've gotten him a lot of really cool posters. We get to talk about those. He's a big fan of like almanacs and facts. Like he's just gotten really into football, which I'm not, unfor- like, unfortunately, I am not that into football. Like, so like, I have like a casual awareness, just enough to be able to like, Make conversation with a dude in an elevator or something about football. And, um, but thankfully like my girlfriend, I mean, she's like really into it. And so like, that's the kind of stuff he's into now, but you know, I catch him like, because I monitor everything he does, the poor guy, like he's going to hear this one day, maybe, no, but like I watch everything he does like online, especially, right. Cause it's it's such a dangerous place for children. And um, he spends like a lot of time, like reading about like Kaiju's, and like these wikis that are just about like odd monsters from Japan, or I don't understand half of it. But like, yeah, I, I wish he was. I bought him a copy of the Defense of Duffers Drift when he was like four. I bought him someone like the Jocko Willink books, and like I've tried to read those with him. He's not that into it. I wish he was um, sometimes, but like again, like we've talked about, like you don't, you don't get to choose, you know, like you. You get to help create a person, and they're a part of you, but they're not you. Like you were saying earlier, they're just not you. They're not, they're not, they're not even guaranteed to be anything like you. He's nothing like his mother or me, and that's. I'm kind of thankful for that in a lot of ways. But yeah, he he won't read any book I'm into. Maybe one day, you know. And I can't handle Blood Meridian for like another decade. it's gonna <laughs> be like twenty. It's gonna be like twenty before he can touch that. Day.
0: Well, I think you're you and you have such a good outlook and, and attitude attitude towards it because I mean, you're, you're not despairing you're not you know forcing him in, into you know in, to be a, a mini you uh, you're you're nurturing and and you're giving him options and you're giving him space and uh, you're setting a great example have you read uh watership down a long time ago actually
1: this is the one about the this is the rabbits yes i remember also yeah i remember um I remember reading it in school. I don't remember that much about it. I remember the movie because i I think even in my like i think I watched it as a teenager and I was somewhat disturbed. There's a lot of blood for a movie about rabbits,
0: <laughs> yeah, but yeah,
1: the, I'm aware
0: of this the The movie's intense. I recommend the the book you know we we're talking about okay. books that you can reread that that's a book I try and read uh, okay. at least once a year uh, and, and I, I think I know you will like it. And I think your, your son might enjoy it as well.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'll take a look.
0: Yeah, I'll have to send you a copy. Well, I, I, kn- I know your, your time is precious. I, I wanted to, to wrap up and I'm, I'm sure Tom has, has another question before we end. But w- what can, you know, people who don't have your uh, impressive uh, background do to uh, be a good dad to be you know, a good man? How can they build up a defense uh, against all of these encroachments on the, the truths and values that we embrace?
1: The, um, actually, I talked to Braxton about this the other day. Um, I don't lie to my son. I have a rule about it. I will not lie to him. I might not tell him everything. There's certain things that I won't tell them, but, uh, I think you can't lie to your kids, period. Like they'll know if they don't know today, they'll know someday and they'll resent you for it. Um, you know, the world is really scary and the instinct sometimes to lie comes not from a desire to deceive your child, but to protect them. That protection won't last. Right. And there's ways of telling them the truth without telling them the whole truth. And when the instinct to deceive your child to protect them comes, turn that into a, a way of telling them something they need to know without telling them everything they don't need to know. So I have a, you know, I don't I don't lie to them. I mean, I'll tease them and stuff. I'll I'll make a I'll tell them like his belly buttons actually when he was shot by an Indian or something like. Um you know i'll i'll, I'll make jokes <laughs> like that but like i will not i refuse to lie to him about things like um like an example is like he's asked me about like the war like because somebody's told him that i was in the war and they'll ask and he has asked me about it like and he'll say things like did you like afghanistan and i'm like i did not like afghanistan like and it wasn't for any, you know, the reasons. Like, I'm just like, yeah, you know, like the people weren't super friendly. Like, I didn't really like the culture. Uh, it's a little warm. Uh, it's a little dry. But then he's like, did you like Iraq? And I was like, I loved Iraq. I actually loved Iraq. I liked the people. I didn't really hate the place. Like, um, I won't tell him something about the war. Like, if he was to ask me, you know, he he did ask me once if I fought in the war. And I told him I did fight. Um, he hasn't asked me any uncomfortable questions, but they'll come one day. And I'm prepared to tell him the truth about it. Like there's um, like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of desire to hide the truth from your children, and I get it, but it's out there anyway. And if it didn't come from you, it comes from somebody else. And you didn't manage that if you didn't tell it to them. Somebody else did, and their version of it and their spin on it, and everything else came with it. And yeah, I just I think that I think the number one thing is to never lie to them. They'll remember one day who told them the truth, and if you're not on the list, it hurts your uh, legacy.
2: Well, I think a lot of times we try to justify lying to them, as in we're protecting them. But the truth is, is it's not our job to keep them from falling. It's just to help cushion the blow. Right. I mean, it, it, and it was, I don't see any other way of it if I don't allow my kids to fall uh, and fail periodically, then I have failed as a father because they I'm won't sure. be able to navigate the rest of the world later. How would be you be in a
1: uh, box one day?
2: What's that? I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean you'll be in a All box right. one day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One, one of these days, you, I mean, they're going to be throwing dirt in on you. Yeah. If you're, if you're trying to protect them and you spend a lifetime doing it, what are you going to do after that? Like you're gone on their own. Yeah, your job your job is to make them a complete human being, rather quickly. Eighteen years, it's fast.
2: Yeah, I mean, way way earlier than before you're in the box.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is, like, you, they might turn away from you for a period of time. It happens. I mean, in a lot of families, and not and not for a failure of the parents. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a testament to that. Like, there was I ran away from home basically at seventeen and had no good reason for it. Um, you've got to prepare them for it either you'll be dead or you'll be gone or something will happen. And yeah, the, the truth's out there. So you're right. Like you, you shouldn't, you should help them in recovery and you know how to respond and recover to bad things, but you can't stop it. It's out there waiting on them.
2: And that 18 years is way shorter than we think. I mean, Olivia turned 16 on Thursday I, and it, it seems like just the other day that, you know, I, w- I was holding her on my chest as she fell asleep. Right you know,
1: that's there to every father. I mean, yeah. my, my son's, you know, just short of that, but I feel like it's going to be tomorrow and I'll be celebrating the
0: same birthday you just did. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it, it's, it's too fast. And then, and then I think about, you know, how must God feel, you know, with right. all, all these children, uh, some of which have, have made poor choices, many of which have, all you know, all of which have made poor choices at some point, but many of which turn turn back and, and get on on the right road. And I think you know, when not lying to our kids, that's another pitfall that we might be tempted to to black pill them. You know, but it can't come from a position of fear. When we're telling them the truth, it has to come from a, a position of confidence. You know, I think all the time about, you know, what would happen to my daughter if I were incapacitated. You know, could she reach uh, food on the shelves? You know, would she know how to navigate to? And she's only six, but you know, since she was two, she's had a really good eye for direction. So she knows how to get to grandma's house you know and, and it's a mm-hmm. walking distance it's a couple miles but she can make it in in a pinch you know but just all these little things but it's not that I'm afraid for her it's that I I believe in her and I want her to to be brave and and to do these hard things um yeah man well and you mentioned your your uh, blog so you've got uh your uh, Digital Drop Zone, and that's at digitaldropzone.com. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about that, and maybe that'll galvanize you into keeping up on that? Uh, a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, i It's a neglected place where I, 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 you know, tweet. I really like the brevity of Twitter. That's where I spend. Like, if I'm gonna, I don't do social media at all. Um, but I, I like that short, concise, you know, rapid fire. I can argue with strangers. I don't have to argue with anybody. I know it's not like Facebook. Um, but I got the drop zone just because there were times I wanted to talk about things in longer form. Um, I'm actually struggling a bit right now. Like I, I have things in there. So if if you were listening to this and like, have hope for me, like maybe pray that I can get some of it out. Like it kind of got stuck on a subject um, and that's what's prevented me from posting. But yeah, there's, there's stuff in there. I mean, I, I set up the tagline, I think, for that to say that it was like from carbine to like keyboard um, to kind of talk about like, you know, my own personal biography, about like what I've come from and what I've come to, but it, it also kind of just um, describes the expansive things I like to cover. So, I mean, if you're interested in like gun stuff, like I talk about some of like, my gun runs, it's like a little sport I've gotten into and I talk about like open carry and concealed carry and I let other people come to and, and guest post um there's some biographical stuff in there um i also started walking through the ranger handbook which again i want to make sure the rangers here that i'm telling everybody i am not ranger qualified and if they would have covered right about the ranger handbook i'll let them but um but yeah i started walking through that i need to get back back to it all so do you to your point brett like yeah it is very neglected but i've kept it up um and i do i do plan to come back as soon as i can like finish wrestling, wrestling with my muse
0: over this latest thing. Well, we're looking forward to that. And, you know, I, I know before we got online, I, I promised that I wouldn't be overly complimentary. So I'm just going to push that envelope as far as I can and, and say that you, you really are a, a great man and, and a good man, a, an exceptional human being. And, and thank you for, for everything you've done for this country. And it means a lot. Is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners in in closing so that they can stop, uh, you know, just double fisting those black pills?
1: Yeah, I mean, things always, everything works in a cycle. Everything that's involving human beings is on a cycle. Like, you know, it's not even a pendulum. Like that's an often used metaphor, but like truly like, you know, I don't know what phase of the cycle we're in. It doesn't seem like a great one. But there's no guarantee it gets better either there's no guarantee it gets worse you know you can spend your life feeling anxious about it you can spend your life feeling bad about it you really spend your life any way you want um but you won't know it like you know the what do they say like the past is unmutable the future unknowable and the present temporary and so like the only thing you can actually change is how you feel right now and it actually is changeable. And so like, you know, be careful what your thoughts are day to day. Like try to stay on the right path to where, you know, you're not effusively positive because you'll wander into something, Um, but you're not so negative and wary of things that you never find any goodness. Like the world's actually a pretty great place. Even now, even with all the things going on, you turn off Twitter, it actually improves. You know, you can think that the world's bad if you want. It's just sort of pointless. Um, So I just encourage people to, you know, stay positive, start trying to find things they can change and accept things they can't.
0: Very well said. And, you know, I I think that you hit the nail on the head. We really got to got to curtail our indulgence in social media but i am grateful for all the good aspects of of twitter especially because that's how you and i have met uh, you know, tom and i've met oh, I through through the means of, of social media as well and you know every time i log on all i see are friends all i see her are, are winners i all i see are, are positive things and you know, when I listened to you on the exit podcast, and and we'll link that too, because it was a fantastic episode. The quote that came to mind was that life is a game and we're all going to die at the end. And we can either die on the bleachers, eating pretzels, or we can die in the field doing something and scoring some points. And, and you've already scored more touchdowns than I can count. and, And I know you'll keep scoring more and for everyone listening uh, have some positivity. Read a book. Go outside. Uh, believe in yourself. Do something good. And make sure that you read the digital drop zone. And we'll look for many more
2: posts coming soon. Tom, did you have anything else for Gruntpa? Just thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. Thanks for the insight. Really appreciate it. Thank you, all.
0: Absolutely. And until next time, this has been Gruntpa and Tom and Brett. Out.